Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome to episode 77, the podcast that almost wasn't. Tonight we will be covering chapters 8 through 12 of Words of Radiance by Brandon Sanderson. The inimitable. Inimitable. Slow downable. <laughs> Possibly not human. Flame retardant. Brandon Sanderson. Brandon Sanderson. On our next book club, we will be covering the interludes, numbered one through four. Just the interludes. Just the interludes. There are four interludes. Go no further. That's right. So what are your thoughts this week? This has been the worst section of the series so far. Really? Yeah. I know there are some parts you uh, has some parts of the narrative that you have some creative disagreements with. Yeah. And we'll get to that. It's not, I want to be clear. It's not bad. It's just of the stuff we've read in the series so far, this has been the least good. You know, we're taking this book in smaller chunks. Mm-hmm. sort of at least according to my paperback doing sort of 40 to 45 page sections mm-hmm. versus the last book we were doing 60 to 80 pages so we are going to definitely have some weeks where it'll it's going to feel slower because we're just not reading quite as much yeah i think that's part of it you know i mean there wasn't as much development we hit the end of a section and if you remember when we hit the end of the last section, it was the end of the last book, which was monumentally right. huge. Right. So in comparison, this is nowhere near as good. That's okay. It's still the beginning of this book, and we're still setting some groundwork. But it was, in my opinion, as you mentioned, there were a handful of issues that I had and things that happened that I was like, really? I don't know about that. <laughs> you weren't like that. I wasn't? You were like, son of a bitch. <laughs> the sand thief, what? It's crap, man. That's crap is what you said. <laughs> That's crap. <laughs> it may have been out loud and it may have been at 1145 at it night. It definitely was. <laughs> <laughs> so... So yeah, that's how I feel. That's how I feel. Would All you right. Would you like to tell them our spoiler policy? Oh which is man, three we minutes into the podcast, and we haven't said that yet. So our spoiler policy: if you're new and you've stuck with us this long, let me tell you our spoiler policy. Basically, I have read these books; Chad has not. So we are enjoying him still being able to make predictions. So we are not going to be spoiling anything on this podcast past chapter twelve of. Words of Radiance. We do get into the other Cosmere works a bit, but only if they do not specifically spoil plot points of any of the novels. Correct. Correct. Would you like to tell us all about Chapter 8? Chapter 8 is called Knives in the Back, Soldiers in the Field. Dalinar is on a plateau run with High Prince Aladar. He's letting Adolin lead the actual assault, though. He's too busy trying to change the world. 
Aladar is not a fan of Dalinar, and he certainly doesn't want to hear any of his BS about honor and stuff. He reminds Dalinar that his brother unified the kingdom with knives in the back and soldiers in the field. Dalinar responds by winning the battle for him. Aladar reluctantly tells him that he wishes he could trust this vision of a better Alethkar. Unfortunately, the other high princes are such a bunch of chode lickers that Aladar isn't willing to make himself vulnerable enough to trust them. Dalinar heads home, having won the battle but still losing the greater war. With 60 days left until impending something, things aren't looking good. As the chapter closes, Dalinar receives a letter from an old friend who might be able to help him. You said chode liquor. <laughs> I believe this might be the only <laughs> fantasy book club podcast to use the term chode liquor. <laughs> I can't confirm that. Is that the most 80s insult you can come up with? That's the most 80s insult I could come up with. That's a good question. The most 80s insult. I mean, I started with fart knocker, but <laughs> chode liquor is just a bit more kind of down and dirty. Uh, butt dart. But listeners, chime in. What's the most '80s insult you can come up with? I, you know, you've stymied me, like you. <laughs> I got hit with so much in such a short <laughs> period of time that I, my brain is just shut off. <laughs> I mean, the high princes are really a bunch of chode lickers, though. You know, I'm down with that. Is I, there, is there any other word to describe them? I really picture them all with '80s action mullets, and like the shard plate has all all of it has a popped collar. <laughs> Every single set of shard plate, the, that collar is popped. That's funny. What do you think is the most 80s movie ever in your mind? And why is it weird science? <laughs> it might be. It might be weird science. I mean. I mean, Teen Witch. Teen Witch wasn't even in the 80s. Shut your mouth. Yes, it was. <laughs> it definitely was. I don't think it was. Teen Witch, hang on. <laughs> I'm Googling. Wow, we're like five minutes in the podcast and we're already Shh, Googling This is important, shit. Chad. 1991. Oh! It's the most 80s. Uh, mine says 1989. Mm. The most 80s movie to ever be made in the 80s, technically. All right, well, you know. You say they all look like chode lickers. I think Aladar looks like what would happen if a Doberman and a cigar had a baby. <laughs> That's perfect. He's a bad guy. <laughs> okay, so let's actually talk about the book for a let's minute here. Let's actually talk about the book. So I really like how... Da we watched Dalinar's journey to move past this sort of guilt-driven, 
obsession with defeating the Barshendi that we don't really see in the book, but he describes it as, you know, when, when the war started, he was all about making up for the fact that he feels like he allowed his brother to die because he was drunk at the time. He was a drunken buffoon. He was a drunken buffoon and, and his brother died and he came up with this plan to defeat the Parshendi and he was all passionate about it, but it was just driven by survivor's guilt. And it's just so cathartic to see someone in this insane, corrupt society use his emotional energy in a positive way to to build something, to make the world better. I also like the fact that, you know, Dalinar is one of our main characters. He could fall into the realm. He could easily have been written as a Gary Stu character, but he's not. And we see him constantly struggling with issues for which he's not well equipped. And this is perhaps one of the most obvious times when he comes out here with the attempt to pay, play politics and to try to build alliances. And he just steps on his tongue the whole time and just can't help but be rash and threatening and be the Blackthorn. Like, you just can't help it. And he knows his weakness. He knows that he's not good at this. Mm-hmm. And even though it kills him to do it, you know, he, he starts trying to talk to Aladar about honor and about doing the right thing for Alethkar. And Aladar's like, whatever. And Dalinar's like, fine, you're going to do it because otherwise I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. It, it also sort of shows that he hasn't really thought all this through because... As soon as he makes that threat to Aladar, he's like, am I really willing to go through with this? Wait a minute. I don't have soldiers to go. Like, he starts suddenly thinking about what he said after he said it, (laughs) which is the opposite of what you do in politics. Yeah, he's not good at politics. And he, he knows that he's not good at politics, but he is good at winning battles. So that works for him. It has so far. How about that? At least so far. And and he's able to win Aladar's or the, the joint battle that they're fighting. He's just one of these guys who can read what's going on. He knows what the Parshendi are going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Aladar hates that he's so good at it, but he likes that they won the battle. The other thing that crossed my mind is when he makes these rash threats, he puts a target on his back for assassins and assassinations and more things like happen to him out on the planes. He knows that none of these people are going to like, they can't outduel him in most cases and they're not going to openly attack him most likely. So the Alethi way is to send an assassin and that would be a ramping up of the stakes and something that would make me, feel more trepidation and concern for Dalinar if I didn't already know that the assassin in white is coming for him. Mm -hmm. So who are these assholes going to send who is going to be worse than that? Right. So it takes a little bit of the stakes out of it. Except that we saw in the last section that Dalinar hadn't even considered this but that what he is doing is also putting his family and Navani at risk. True. 
because I forget who it was in the last section that brought up, hey, you know, these high princes aren't likely to come directly at you. They're going to come after the people you care about first because that's how they work. Yeah. We see this theme coming back over and over in the Dalinar chapters of how hard it is to change the direction of a nation. It feels almost impossible, but it's such a timely theme for where we are right now. And, you know, there's there's so many people across the world just not happy with where their countries are going. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that really just kind of hits me in the feels a little bit watching this one person trying to to change the tide of his entire culture. And I think we all at some point have wanted to do that, wished we could do that. So that, if, again, we just really feel for Dalinar's struggle here. We're really rooting for him. But it feels really impossible at this point. So we also have the situation out on the battlefield where they defeat the Parshendi, the Parshendi retreat, but the Parshendi Shardbearer is there once again, mm-hmm. but doesn't really intervene. Yes. And it, it just sort of serves as a reminder to me, as do a handful of other things in this section, that we really don't understand a lot of this world yet, and particularly the Parshendi. We really don't yet understand their motivations, because as he states... If the Parshendi Shardbearer had been out there fighting for this gem heart, it would have made a monumental difference in their tactics and their likelihood of succeeding, but he wasn't. And so the stakes and, and what they're fighting for are completely different, but they don't really realize that. It's interesting you say that because one quote that really stuck out to me this time was when Dalinar is walking across the plains and he's reflecting that everything human, everything that they've brought with them is just dwarfed by the vastness of this landscape. Hmm. And it really just really just feels like an alien landscape, even though these people obviously are, you know, they live on this planet. To to Mm. them, it's not an alien landscape. But Brandon Sanderson's really just able to give you this feeling of otherworldliness which I think is kind of cool. But yeah, there's really so much that's not understood, and especially about the Parshendi, which are a huge part of the story. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest parts of the story, and we don't really understand them. Yet. These people could really deal with with a qualified anthropologist. (laughs) I've never seen a fantasy novel more in need of a good ethnography. They, really, absolutely. We end this chapter, or or the last note I should say that I have in this chapter, right. is Dalinar says he thinks that he wrote the words on the wall himself. It's like he's his own twin brother. Dios mio! <laughs> it's all a little bit too soap opera-y for me. Well, you'll just have to keep reading and find out whether that's true or not. But really, that's actually a fairly reasonable thing for him to suspect, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it certainly would have to be one of the possibilities, right? You know, last week I was like, Parshman, Spren, didn't cross my mind that it could potentially be him. But yeah, that makes sense. I also tend to believe someone when they say, 
think that might have been something I did. I don't know, half asleep, drunk, stupor, sleepwalking. You know, so when he says something like that, I tend to think he he probably is accurate. He, he must know something. I don't know about that or not, but to me, reading this, even the first time reading it, that seemed like a reasonable thing for Dalinar to wonder. You know, he he does have large stretches of time that he's not aware of his actions in the world. And, you know, it's that or someone managed to sneak past Kaladin and all the guards sneak into his room. Yeah, true. So who at this point, when you read this chapter, who did you think the friend was from the letter? Did you have any suspicions? Oh, I or? thought it was. No, I certainly thought it was Amram. You did right yeah, away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good yeah. for you. I didn't. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's what made the most sense mm-hmm. to me. So yeah, I didn't. I didn't even think of that as really being something that was like meant to be suspenseful. <laughs> I just sort of assumed that's who it was. Oh. Chapter nine. Chapter nine. Walking the grave. Kaladin, Rock, and Teft bring some of the other bridgemen down into the chasms to train. Kaladin is hoping that this initiation will help to open them up. While Teft does the drill sergeant thing, Kaladin talks to Syl about his fears surrounding his powers. He agrees to try to learn more and sends Rock to get Sigzel so that they can start the process. So not a lot happening in this chapter, but some important conversations. I feel like there's some decent stuff in this chapter. This Mm -hmm. is... I mean, not as you, as you said, not a ton happens, but I still took a fair amount of notes in this chapter. I mean, I think somebody on our Facebook group page felt like the metaphors around the concept of like bringing the soldiers low to train them was a little bit on the nose, mm-hmm. but I didn't, that didn't really bother me. It's been my experience that when you're trying to motivate people in groups or get people to do things in groups or get people to bond together as a group, that things that might otherwise seem unsophisticated actually seem powerful in a group setting. So you might poo-poo it individually, but you might even, you know, you might find it hokey individually, but when a group gets together in power, it forms a sort of ritual that helps kind of bind it all together. So to me, it made sense. Uh, You know, it reminds me of things that I went through in the army that individually I might've thought, Oh, this is silly, but I can't deny that as being a member of the group and going through those things, it does exactly what he says. It builds you together. It gives you sort of a sense of belonging. It initiates you into a club it gives you all that it gives you that sort of social glue that gives you a reason to want to belong and continue to do things that you otherwise wouldn't want to do i agree i like that um teft tells them that this is why some call us the order of bone and i just like that name that actually never jumped out at me before never really caught it i don't think anybody called him the order of bones i think teft just made it up right then <laughs> Oh, Teft, I feel you. Like George Teft Costanza. just wants a nickname. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why I call him Coco. <laughs> you can't pick your nickname. <laughs> we know, we know. Flash? 
So let's talk about Cal and Sill's conversation. Yes. Well, this is one of my favorite quotes, my favorite kind of bits of dialogue in this section. Uh, they're talking about the laws of nature. And uh, Sill says, laws are of men. Nature doesn't have them. Yeah. And Kaladin's like, if I drop this rock, it'll go down. And she's like, that's not a law. That's more of like an agreement between friends. And then she says, we have to be consistent or we'll break your brains. I, yeah, I, I noted that too. That was one of the things that I wrote down. You know, and I'm I'm sitting here sort of in wonderment going, is that true? <laughs> is she just talking out of her ass because she likes to be a prankster? Or are the spren actually determining the physical laws of nature like I mean, what we know about spren would seem to indicate that that's not true because when yasna and shalan have been talking about spren and the cognitive realm in general it's the thoughts that people have about certain things that makes the spren so those things would have had to exist before the spren However, we also see when in later chapters, when Kaladin is training and he's sticking things to the walls, you, they can see, he and Rock can see the spren that are sticking them, these little purple spren that are holding yeah. the rock to the wall. It would make sense in the context of that and that in this world, the spren are just sort of agreeing that things will all be a certain way. And that's why surge binders can act against the laws of nature. Yeah, that was the other part of it I was thinking, is it is by Spren that those laws are violated. So so who knows? Were the surges there before the Spren? Are the Spren a personification of the surges? I think at this point it's hard to tell, but it's just interesting to think about. I think I'm, I'm going to just give you my opinion for what it's worth, and it's worth the cost of this podcast, which is that the laws exist but the Spren could potentially violate them if they wanted to. All right. She also goes on to talk about her coming into this realm and the bond and that the Stormfather did not want her to go. So she defied the Stormfather in order to participate in this bond. I'm presuming this is the Nahel bond. What do you, yes. whatever you call it? And it's what was broken when the heralds refused to be tortured any longer. So that's interesting. But I believe that the radiants were still around long after the heralds abandoned the oath pact. The recreants happened much later. That's we don't true. know what triggered the recreants, but we assume that the recreants is what broke the bond and. Okay. Supposedly, probably killed a lot of Spren, but the Spren don't like to talk about it. So I think those were two separate things. But yeah, I do think that the recreants caused the Spren to not want anything to do with humans for a while. And now for some reason, they're coming back. You know, Kaladin asks Syl, are there others like me? And she's kind of like, oh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because he says, oh, have you had had time to come up with a good lie? And she says, lie. What do you think? I am a cryptic. 
And then he's like, what's a cryptic? And she can't remember. Yeah. But that's just an interesting, probably bit of foreshadowing that we do know there is a cryptic out there and, you know, eventually probably going to meet up with each other. Well, that's what Shalon Sprint is, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think it's very interesting that Sill's face changes when she is telling him that other Spren are trying to reclaim what is lost. We don't know quite what that is, but I don't think it's there for no reason. I'm sure it's not. I had another question. I don't know if you can answer this. Do we get in any of the histories of the past, any of Dalinar's visions, etc., do we have a sense of if the high storms high storms existed hundreds of years ago? I don't know that if any of the visions we've specifically seen have talked about high storms. So we don't really know if high storms are a relatively new phenomenon or if they've all if they've always existed. We don't really know that at this point. Correct. Okay. So we also know that Sill has seen new spren like red lightning that are dangerous. Yes. Also around that the last time we had a conversation with Yasna, she intimated that these ability of spren and humans to bond comes when the desolations are about to happen right and these skills are needed but there's nothing in sill any there's nothing in anything that sill says that indicates that there was some sort of greater purpose behind it in her mind of like oh no I see these spren, so therefore I must do this. It's more like she felt compelled to do it, and then later she's seeing these dangerous things. So we can't, we don't know, other than what Yasna is speculating, it, we don't really know if it's true or not. Right, because Syl doesn't really remember Shades Mar. Correct, yeah. And I think in the next chapter, uh, Pattern says the same, even when he is. Back in Shadesmar trying to help Shalon, he says I, I can't that he can't remember this place. So we, we don't know uh, what exactly propelled them, but but we do know that there are that it's happening in greater numbers now. Correct. And Syl tells Kaladin that they are needed, that he's going to have to become what Dalinar Colon is looking for. So she does have some sense. That what she's doing and what he's doing is important in some greater scheme. We just don't know right. where it comes from. Right. So as a part of that conversation where she's telling him he has to become this and he's going through the, the whole thing of, oh, but they'll take it from me. And I may be contradicting myself, but Kaladin's justifications for not wanting to become a radiant seem kind of weak to me. Oh, they're definitely weak. They're part of his character, though. This constant back and forth with the guilt and the self-doubt and and the fear. 
I think that's what keeps Kaladin from being a Gary Stew. You know, you've got this one kind of super powered character uh, amidst all these Joe Schmoes, but he's crippled with self doubt and all of his weaknesses are kind of part of his own mind, his own character. I think that's what's interesting about each of the radiance that we see start to develop. Mm -hmm. And that's a deliberate thing. I think that was done by Brandon Sanderson, that the people who become heroes are the ones who are the most broken. So I love the dynamic between rock and Syl. Yes, that's funny. Um, in a part in this chapter, she comes over and he always bows to her. So she lands on his shoulder. So he'll have to try and bow to his own shoulder. (laughs) And I just like the back and forth between them he's kind of worshipful of her she she loves it she eats it up and and also kind of teases him at the same time it's very charming so chapter 10 is called red carpet once white a very short glimpse at a very eerie scene shallan is 11 and her father is wiping blood from her face he sings her a lullaby as he carries her past her mother's body which doesn't bleed and the body of another man who does her mother's body has face down so she can't see the terrible eyes. Holy crap. This chapter, right? I know. Rashar and lullabies are the worst. Right? So sick. The worst. <laughs> so I wrote the lullaby out. Now go to sleep in chasms deep with darkness all around you. <laughs> The rock and dread may be your bed, so sleep, my baby dear. Now comes the storm, but you'll be warm. The wind will rock your basket. The crystals fine will glow sublime, so sleep, my baby dear. And with a song, it won't be long, you'll sleep, my baby dear. Yeah, that's creepy as hell. While Freddy comes to rock you. I mean, Rockabye Baby is kind of... It's also pretty, yeah. Also yeah. pretty creepy. So, can't, yeah. I get where where he's coming from. So the first time I read this chapter, and this to me is the most interesting part of every, of of everything in this section. Yeah. The first time I read this chapter, I think it was, I think it was falling asleep during it. Mm-hmm. It was uh, late at night, and I was under the impression that what I was reading was a situation where Shalon had woken up or been involved in some horrific event and she was sort of reliving the memory where her father had killed everyone or a bunch of people, including her mother and was trying to, you know, get her to move on and forget about it. But when I reread the chapter, I noticed the phrase a monster should not be held in love. Which implies that the monster being held is Shalon herself. Yes. So that complicated by a couple paragraphs later where she passes this strong box that has a light leaking from it that she says hold some kind of monster. So Shalon and this monster in the strong box, one of the two or both of them or somehow working together caused this catastrophe 
to occur. Well, the first line of this chapter is, the world ended and Shalon was to blame. Okay, I missed that. Okay. And and she does, she calls herself a monster and a, and a murderer as she's being carried out. Now, we know she's a murderer because we know she's murdered her father, but obviously that hasn't happened yet at this juncture. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct. Yeah, this is prior to that event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, her mother was killed by a shard blade. Yes. Or something that has the same ability. Right. So is this a case of you have to lock up your guns? You have to lock up your shard blades? Or, you know, is there something else going on? Yeah, I don't see how a a child would accidentally get a hold of a shard blade. They disappear unless you will them to not disappear when you put them down. Correct, yeah. Unless that's that box is holding like a spren that like bonds and forces people to do evil things. Is it like a demon possession thing? So we don't, we don't know. It also sheds a completely different light on why poor Shalon got locked in a room for most of her teenage years. Yeah. It, it wasn't, it wasn't to protect her from the outside world. It was to protect everybody else from her. And the contrast here between everything we've seen about Shalon's father, you know, being this this evil, abusive man, this image we have of him, and then the tenderness that we see in this scene, it's like it's like a gut punch. It's it's I don't, I think it's really good storytelling. Yeah. We also have with Shalon the experience with her brothers and them all being all twisted and weird as well, mm-hmm. which we were led to believe was because their father was abusive. Right. I'd almost have to go back and reread that section with like non Balat and and read back into his internal dialogue and, mm-hmm. and figure out what that was. I mean, is that why they're all weird and twisted, or is it because Shalon killed everyone in their family except for them? I, you know, they don't—they don't seem to be terrified of her. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't know. All I know is Shalon's flashbacks beat the crap out of Kaladin's flashbacks. Yeah, okay? way better. Way right? better. Absolutely. Not even close. So, what do you think happened? I can't tell you that. You're taking the easy way out. (laughs) Come on, Duchess. Stop cheaping out on us. There are dozens of listeners who want to know. (laughs) So chapter 11 is called An Illusion of Perception. Shalon wakes up on the beach. She was saved by the Santhede. But she's in bad shape. She's unable to convince a stick to turn into fire, but she does find Yasna's trunk containing her life's work. Exhausted and bloody, she runs across a group of slavers and uses what Yasna taught her about authority to convince them to take her to the Shattered Plains. So let's just put it out there. Go on. Get it out. A Santhid. The Santhid rescued her. Uh, Why not? (sighs) She bonded with it. She looked it in his giant, 
fishy eye. And it was like, damn, girl, (laughs) you hot. (laughs) If you ever drown in a shipwreck, I'm going to save your ass. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's lonely out there in the cold ocean. It sounds like Barry White, by the way. It sounded what? It sounds like Barry White. (laughs) Oh, girl. No, I'm not going to try that. No, I agree. I think that just as easily, unless it comes back around, I did think that just as easily she could have clung to a bit of shipwreck or whatever. It didn't have to be this deus ex machina, like like giant sea creature saving her with his tentacles. I don't know. I, I didn't understand why. I mean, main, why that had to happen. But. Main character surviving shipwrecks and washing up on shores is kind of a trope. Yeah, you don't really need a yeah. Like I said, unless it comes back. I will leave some allowance for there being something that happens later which creates more justification for it. But on the basis of what I'm reading now, I don't know. It seems kind of cheap and unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in agreement. I would have bought just as easily, oh, she managed to grab a piece of driftwood and float to shore. I would have bought that perfectly well. (sighs) I'm beginning to wonder if Shallan is cursed. Like actually cursed? Like there are actual curses? Yeah, or yeah, something. I mean, so now this, these, these two chapters are making me have making me really doubt everything I've read about Shallan to this point. She seems so innocent when we first meet her, but her whole reason for going to Yasna is to steal something from her. She capsule dies under some slightly strange circumstances. Her family dies, her mother dies, she goes on this boat, soul casts the boat into water, presumably everybody on the boat dies, logically everybody on the boat should die, they... She's got some bad juju, I'm... I I mean... I'm not gonna gonna lie. And then I have to go back to her decisions on the boat. We talked about it a little bit last week, but now it... I'm having more time to sit with it. I'm less comfortable with the concept of this character who's supposed to be this very brilliant person who doesn't have enough common sense to... If you have the ability to soul cast, that's your choice. That's your choice of action is in the middle of an ocean to turn the boat into water as opposed to so many other things you could have done? You know, turn the the clubs or what or axes or whatever they were using into live ducks, you know? I mean, like, I mean, there's so many other things you could do, you know? But no, this was her choice. And, and last week I kind of cut her some slack because I thought, no, oh, she's under all this duress. But I don't know. I'm having a harder time doing it now. Why do you think that is? I don't know. 
Maybe because she murdered her mom. Well, that definitely changes your perspective on a character. Right? Shalon is such an interesting character because she has all this stuff locked in different compartments. And it's like, it's locked away even from herself. You know, she's got all these memories that she just keeps shut away to where she's, it doesn't seem like she's even conscious of them. And anytime one of them gets triggered, she just goes into a a total dissociative state. So it's interesting that that's, that's, that's her way of survival, you know, and it's just watching what that does to this person. Yeah. It's Uh, tough. To me, it's interesting. It's tough. But I think also the way this chapter ends doesn't help because she says she so she finds these tradespeople, right? Did you notice who it is? Yes, of course. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. yeah, it's a lock of right of the crazy eyebrows who enslaves people. So she stumbles across these people. They're the slavers. She remembers Yasna and how Yasna just assumes control of things. She says, I assure you, tradesman Tavlakov, the expense is minuscule to me. The lie, she says, to get them to take her to the Shattered Plains just rolls off the tongue. She doesn't have any problem with it at all. Not just assuming control, but also lying by insinuating that she has the ability to pay them to do this when we know that she doesn't. We know she doesn't have that ability. So not only is she lying, but she's also taking away these people's agency, making them go way out of... I mean, all these things that she's doing that vary from deception to just being a bitch. And I'm having a hard time now not thinking that Shalon's the big bad. (laughs) Like, Like, the spren that she chooses to, or not chooses, but the spren who finds her, presumably, just like the one who found Kaladin, is based on something in her spirit. And the one that finds Kaladin is an honor spren. The one that finds Shallan is a deception spren. At first I thought, eh, okay, uh, a little weird, but I'll go with it. Maybe she's just a gray character. Now I don't think she's gray. Even though her motive is to save the world. That's what Hitler thought too. Every character you don't like is Hitler, Chad. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Maybe that's extreme. (laughs) No, it is... Shalon uses deception to get what she needs from these people. But what she needs, the reason that she needs to get to the Shattered Plains is to continue Yasna's research, yeah. which is ultimately going to save the world from utter destruction. So Brandon Sanderson uses this character to explore the morality of lying versus truth. 
And it gets it goes crazy places from here. I don't I'm not going to spoil anything, but it it gets a lot deeper and a lot more interesting. You know, um, like Kaladin's core question is, can you ever kill to protect? Is that ever okay? Yeah. So with his character, we really explore the morality of killing. And it's a similar thing with Shallan. Can you ever bring the truth out by using a lie? How do you shape reality using lies? And is that ever okay? So it's going to get a lot more into that. But like Pattern says to her, he's very interested in truths, even though he's a a lie spren. That's what draws him. Mm -hmm. But when he tries to explain that to her, he says, truths make lies. Like light, if you have light, you're going to have a shadow. Mm -hmm. So without spoiling anything, it's, it's a very interesting exploration of all of these concepts. And it's not, it's not a, a lazy writing kind of thing where we're just throwing, throwing things around. This is all, all the parts of her character are very purposeful and she's one of my favorites. I, I definitely think she's the most interesting character in the book so far. Like as convoluted and weird as it is, that's that's what makes it interesting, right? You know these these conflicts within a person that you can you can see you can sort of reasonably see how these twisted ideas can coexist at the same time in in a person because we know people like that. I mean, not like Shalon specifically, but but we know people who have these contradictory parts of their personality coexisting all at the same time. I know people like that. So the scene where Shalon is on the beach and she's trying to convince the stick to become fire. Okay. That's pretty funny. <laughs> so in the, um, you can't go on the wiki cause it's too spoilery, no. but there's a whole page on the wiki devoted to the stick. I'm a stick. <laughs> And all these theories about how the stick is the most actually the most powerful being in the Cosmere. <laughs> and it's, it just goes on about the stick as a world hopper. It's the same. And then every place a branch or stick is mentioned in any other Cosmere book. It's like, <laughs> it's the same stick that did this and that. <laughs> it's just funny. I, I can see that. <laughs> are you sure you wouldn't like to be something more interesting? Think of how I'm much, a stick. Think of how much fun it would be. <laughs> but I'm a stick. <laughs> that is one happy stick, man. <laughs> right? I don't know if it's the big bad. I don't know if it's the most par- powerful character, but it might be the most self-actualized character. <laughs> so true. It knows what it is. <laughs> it knows what it wants. <laughs> and listen... Why would you want to talk something into setting itself on fire anyway? What's wrong with you, Shalon? You know, you're right. She's the big less bad. Less and less gray. <laughs> She's the big bad. <laughs> She's the void bringer. Chapter 12 is called Hero. Kaladin tests his powers with Bridge 4 helping him. He mostly sticks things to the wall, including the Lopin. Kaladin becomes closer to actually considering almost maybe coming out as a surge binder. 
Unfortunately, when he gets back to camp, he's in for a nasty surprise. Dalinar's surprise visitor turns out to be none other than old Black Betty Amaram. I got three words for this chapter. Yeah. Whoa. (laughs) Black Betty. So. That's it. We start with the snapter here. I'm going to read that. Again, all the snapters in this section have been uh, snippets from Navani's journal written sometime after the events of all of this. Okay, so they give us little clues. But this one says, Unfortunately, we fixated upon Sadius's plotting so much that we did not take note of the changed pattern of our enemies, the murderers of my husband, the true danger. I would like to know what wind brought about their sudden, inexplicable transformation. So we know from Yasna's research that they are afraid of the Parshman transforming. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so we see here in Navani's journal that at some point there's going to be some kind of transformation. I'm tired of her talking about it. I want to see it. Just want a thunderclast. Come Chad just on, wants man. a thunderclast. <laughs> so I like the way that these snapters are used to tease out the future a little bit. Yeah. Create a little bit of tension. It goes back to something we haven't really talked about since we were in the King Killer Chronicle about this concept of how we have the difference between surprise and suspense, which you've heard of. Surprise mm-hmm. surprise is when a bomb goes off. Suspense is knowing there it was there before it goes off, mm-hmm. right? So but we have the same sort of thing with the emo- emotional downturns, right? These, mm-hmm. you know, these uh, broken characters or these horrific events that are going to occur, deaths and things of that nature. It's one thing for them to happen. It's one thing to be surprised by Yasna's death. It's another thing to know that this big cataclysmic thing is on the horizon and it's coming and all you can do is watch it unfold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's well done here. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Also well done, the Lopin being stuck to the wall. The Lopin's that pretty was, funny. That was a pretty good shtick. He's relatively funny in this section. Mm-hmm. This chapter was a lot of Sigzel taking out calipers and writing things down on his Excel spreadsheet. Sigzel might be my spirit animal. He might be. Him lamenting not having accurate enough tools. I can't accurately measure anything. (laughs) You know, that's, you know, it was that. And then we find out about Amram. And I think Kaladin actually practicing combat using Stormlight was really cool, especially since we can kind of compare his developing skills with what we know he's capable of. Yeah. Via Seth's chapters. So we know, like, if we remember what Seth is able to do, yeah. we kind of compare it with what Kaladin is just figuring out that he can do, and it sets up this tension of, is he going to figure out enough to be able to beat Seth when Seth makes it to the Shattered Plains to kill Dalinar? Yeah, because Seth is clearly far, far ahead of him. It, exactly. And yeah. he's he's on his way to the Shattered Plains. It's obviously being set up for a, a conflict between the two, as Kaladin is now Dalinar's bodyguard. So that's a neat bit of tension there as well. We also have a really human moment with Teft. He's struggling with self-doubt. And I thought it was really cool in the last chapter that 
Kaladin attracts glory spren not because of anything that he's done but because he's proud of Teft. Teft is yeah. stepping up as sort of a a leader among the bridgemen. He's taken mm-hmm. over the training and that is enough like Kaladin is more proud of that than anything else that he has done. So I think that's a cool thing about that character. But we see Teft really struggling with being put in a leadership position. And we've seen him say to Kaladin before, I don't want to be that he didn't want to be part of whatever Kaladin was doing because he thought he was going to let Kaladin down because that's what he does, that he belonged with the Bridgman. He belongs at the bottom of the barrel. We know that something tragic happened to everyone who knows anything about the radiance and that Teft is responsible for it. We don't know a whole lot more. Yeah. And that's all I have for chapter 12. Next week, we'll get into some interludes. Get some, probably some new and interesting characters, maybe mm-hmm. revisit some old ones. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't looked at who's in the interludes yet. Oh, just wait. So we'll, we'll just have, wait. have some interesting stuff to discuss. Would you like to talk about some interactions from our listeners? Yes. Let's do the questions. All right. So in our traditional way, we like to ask for questions leading up to the podcast. So Theo says, did you like my comparison of Lord and Lady Sadius to the Macbeths from last time? Absolutely. Spot on. Spot on, man. Yeah. He also says, would you have just robbed and killed Shallan if you were a slaver? Do you want to take this one? Sure. (laughs) Sure. You seem to have strong feelings. Well, perhaps for the good of the world, (laughs) it might be appropriate. So that's such a tricky question to answer because I would never rob and kill anyone just because they were weak and vulnerable so on the face of it no at the same point in time he says if you were a slaver and then i have to be like well wait a minute if i'm a slaver then i'm the kind of person who takes advantage of other people's misery so maybe i would and then i start to feel like wallace sean from the Princess Bride, and now I don't know what's going on. <laughs> it, it all seems inconceivable. <laughs> I still have to think that Tavlakov, despite all the weird so- social norms around slavery being acceptable, is still not a fundamentally evil person who would just assassinate somebody i can't understand the social norms that would say it's okay to take advantage of a weak some some dark-eyed person in a weakened state and sell them as a slave but not do the same to a light-eyed person but yet i don't think i would so i think that I put way more effort (laughs) into thinking about that question than I should have. Okay. Well, how about this one? Also from Theo. Do you think it's possible that dead men actually do wear plaid after all? Well, 
given the amount of time that I've spent in thrift shops looking at men's clothes, which usually come from estate sales, I'm going to have to say that most dead men wear plaid. So how do we feel about the chasm, also from Theo, helping to train the recruits thing? He said he felt, this is who we were talking about, it felt a little bit too much like a literary device. We kind of addressed that a little bit. Yeah, I I understand that, and I do think it, it does work on that level. You know, we're going to bring them low. But to me, that kind of works because I, I have experience with that. I sort of, I can understand people having a problem with it, mm-hmm. but it works for me because I've had experiences where that is effective. Mm-hmm. Da Babalina says, if you had to have an, a square inch of hair Somewhere on your body that you could not remove, where would you choose to have it? I mean, on my head, I guess, (laughs) with my other hair. Right in the (laughs) middle of my bald spot. (laughs) I'm assuming that means not on your head. Oh, well, in that case, right in the middle of my forehead. (laughs) You could do it like on the back of your neck because you have long hair. I, I could. I could. I'm going to say bottom of my foot. Oh, no. That sounds awful. Really? Yeah. Hair on the bottom of your foot? Sure. It's one of the few square inches of your body that's not. (laughs) (laughs) I feel, I just, I don't know. I, I, I'm now I'm putting too much thought into it. (laughs) I, I feel like it would get sweaty and gross all the time. But you haven't answered the question. I, I'm thinking too much about it. <laughs> you know what? I, I would just do it right smack dab in the middle of my chest. Just go for it. <laughs> Roof of my mouth. <laughs> okay, so Brian McClure says, when comparing Warbreaker to Stormlight, I've noticed that in Warbreaker, most of the magic system is explained to you within the first chapter, whereas Stormlight, it's spread throughout the series. The reader slowly discovers more about the magic system as he reads. I'm wondering which you prefer. So I, I like the way that Brandon Sanderson, and, and I feel like in Stormlight, he does lay out quite a bit of the magic system in the first chapter, at least yeah. enough for you to understand. You know, we have that assault of Seth, on Gavilar's palace right away. And he really does lay it out for you. And this is something he does in most of his books. Uh, in Mistborn, um, he does the same thing as well. Like, this is how it works. And and I like that. I like how well thought out his magic systems are. We've talked about that a lot. But I guess the difference in Stormlight that I see is that the magic system is just so much more complex. Like, we know we see Seth doing this stuff with surges, but we don't know anything about Spren or the Bond, and it is revealed much more subtly. So I I do definitely like the complexity of the magic system in Stormlight. I prefer to have mysteries sort of slowly unfold. But Warbreaker is also a standalone novel. Yeah. So... I also don't want to waste a lot of time, you know, drawing things out that don't need to be drawn out. Right. You know, I, in general, as much as fantasy is my favorite genre, 
and fantasy is necessarily reliant upon some form of magic. It's the part about fantasy that's the least interesting to me. So it's not something I care as much about. Good answer. So Brian also asks, what's the what's your favorite quote for the section? I, I mean, I'm a stick. Yeah. Definitely. I'm a stick. <laughs> he also asks, do you have any predictions on what POV characters will be included in the interludes? I don't know. If it's not Hoyd, I'm not really interested. Mm. All right. No, I mean, I'm sure they'll be fine, but that's that's the one I actually care about. And Seth, like, that's it. Mm-hmm. Hoyd and Seth. The rest mm-hmm. of them are just for color. <laughs> so Cody Mitchell says, back in Shallan's brother's interlude in Way of Kings, he describes small shell creatures called songlings that sing back and forth to each other. Do you think this reveals a connection to the Parshendi? If so, what could this mean? No, I think I think the difference is that the Parshendi sing a song in unison without regard to distance. Mm-hmm. I think this is just more showing you how weirdly life has had to adapt to this really harsh and strange environment. So I don't, I don't think they're related. It'd be cool if they did, but I don't, I don't think so. So if you're a listener who is not part of our Facebook group page, run, don't walk. And get on that page. Uh, right now we've got, a, I don't know, what, a little over 100? It's about 150. Um, people on there. So it's a, it's a good, tight little group. Yeah. And some really good discussions on there. And that's the page where listeners can start discussion threads as well. So we have a lot more going on there than we can get into on the podcast. But Yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff there. It has become sort of the main vehicle for listeners being able to interact with each other. Uh, kind of taking over the the Twitter page. Uh, I wish I had more time to be able to spend. I'm I'm at kind of like the busy season uh, right now for for work, and I just don't have as much time to get on there. But I'll be back. I'll be back. So I have some questions for you. Oh, that's exciting. We're really just one. I found an app recently that gives me insight into our podcast as it relates to other iTunes stores outside of the U.S. Because one of the limitations we have is that because we're a U.S. podcast and we live in the U.S., we only get information from the U.S. Apple podcast store. So we don't see mm-hmm. reviews. We don't see where our ch- where we rank in any of the other countries mm-hmm. because Apple doesn't for whatever reason, doesn't want to give you that information. So I found an app that gives me information about where we rank internationally in some of the podcast charts. So I'm going to give you some options, and I want you to tell me where you think we have the highest iTunes rankings from these four countries. Okay. So the four countries are Norway... Israel, 
Portugal and Ukraine. Where do you think we have the highest rankings from those four countries? Well, I want to rule out Norway because I feel like as much as we crack on the Swedish, they'd probably not like us. No, Norwegians hate Swedes. Do they? Oh, then they don't get along. It could could be Norway then. I don't know, but I kind of want to say the Ukraine too. Because I know like we're big in Luxembourg, which was a... <laughs> and Luxembourg and Ukraine are right next to each They're other. They're not, but it's another <laughs> like weird country that you would never expect. So I'm going to go with Ukraine. Not bad. Ukraine is our second okay. highest ranking. So to put this in perspective... The best ranking we have achieved in the U.S. store, okay, within the literature subgenre, okay. So really breaking it down, okay. The highest ranking we've ever achieved is one hundred and ninety-eighth. Go us! So I'll give it to you in reverse order. In Norway, and these are our four highest ranking okay. countries. In Norway, we have ranked as high as the 91st ranked podcast. All right, go Norway. In the literature subgenre. Oh, still, even so. Okay. In Portugal, we have ranked as high as 40th. Damn, Portugal. In the literature subgenre. <laughs> in Ukraine, we have ranked as high as 24th. Damn. In the literature subgenre. And so Israel. in our number one country, our highest ranking we've ever achieved is Israel, where we have ranked as high as number 12 in the literature subgenre. Nice. In the Israeli Apple podcast store. Well, thank you to our Israeli listeners. Yeah. It was for like a day. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> And now we're like 97th or something like that. I'll take it. But for that one glorious day, we are in the top 15 <laughs> in this one small show, subgenre. So we will take it. So the other thing that's interesting is that has also allowed me to see some new podcast reviews we've gotten from these other countries that we would oh, cool. never get to see. And so, therefore, we would never have a chance to thank these people. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't allow me to go back in history. It only shows me new things from when I started my service. So, I don't have, I have no idea how many reviews we have, like in the Canadian mm-hmm. Apple Podcast store, for instance. Thank you to ABS2986. In the Apple Podcast Store in Great Britain, who said, wonderfully done, amazing theories. Awesome. Thank you to Sven VDB, who says, listen to this. A nice podcast, lots of laughter, cool concept, in-depth conversations of your favorite fantasy books, a good listen while stuck in traffic to work. Uh, That is from the Belgium iTunes store. Awesome. Thank you. And from the Canadian, Trish DiStefano, who said, love these two. They make me jealous and my husband won't read Name of the Wind. They have the cutest chemistry. I love their discussion and I love the podcast. So thank you, Trish, 
excuse me, Trish DiStefano. Awesome. Yep. I also want to give a special shout out to Jen Nagel, who has been helping out with our Reddit subreddit. Oh, yes. And is helping to mod and put some content out there on that, which is great because neither of us are particularly active on Reddit. I'm bad at Reddit. I've had, I have a hard time finding the, um, the page even. Yeah, it's not, the, it's not the best interface, that's for sure. So if you're, if you're a Redditor, go and, uh, and help Jen Nagel out because not getting a whole lot of traction right now on the Reddit. But thank you, Jen, for, for helping and for volunteering to step up to, to assist us in that area. The Reddit is r slash the Duke and Duchess for people who are looking for it. If you're on the Reddits, you can go to the subreddit called The Duke and Duchess, and that is where you will find our stuff. Also, apparently, fair warning, if you apparently if you are trying to find our Goodreads page and just search for Chad Dukes, you'll get a photo, a, a, a book cover that is an extremely shaved happy trail of a guy. Oh, really? Did you see that post? No, no, I haven't seen On it On the Facebook group page. Oh, Zachary Kirchin says, in my several attempts to find the Goodreads group, I searched Chad Dukes in the app. This is the first <laughs> book in the results. I now know what book is discussed on the other podcast. <laughs> the book is by someone named Chad Wild, and it's called The Hunky Hot Duke. And it is literally just a guy's happy trail, but shaved. It's... It, it's weird incredibly creepy looking I, it's very creepy i can't look at it out of the side of my eye because <laughs> i i can't look at it directly i'm not trying to insult chad wilde's writing <laughs> i'm sure it's wonderfully written it's a five-star book <laughs> apparently it is a one rating five stars but it's five stars but uh you know i mean hey you've been warned yes exactly <laughs> You have, in fact, been warned. Oh, my goodness. Are you ready to hear some predictions? Yes. All right. I don't have as many predictions this time as I as I have had, but I do have a few. So one, the obvious one, uh, the, the softball, is Shalon's father locked her away for the safety of others, not the other way around, as we were initially told. Number two... Dalinar is going to offer Kaladin a shard blade, just like Amaram did. Kaladin's going to lose his shit. And my third and final one this week, it can't be as simple as the Voidbringers are the Parshendi. It can't be that simple. As in, here the bad guys, go kill them. We're in the beginning of the second book. This is like the equivalent of watching an episode of Law and Order and they tell you who did it in the first five minutes. Can't be that simple. Good predictions. All right. That is all I have. Do you have anything else? I do not. Where can they find us? They can find us on our homepage at the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. They can find us on Instagram 
at the Duke and Duchess podcast, also on Twitter at the D&D podcast. They can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess, and they can find our Facebook group page by going to uh, facebook.com backslash groups backslash the D&D group. If you like anything that you've heard here and you want to leave us a review, leave us a review on your respective Apple podcast app. And moving forward, we will actually be able to see them. Also, if you like what you heard, tell somebody. Tell a friend. Pimp us out, yo. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.